the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hey there everyone, this is Darwin Nesidu. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Peter Max. He's a famed illustrator and graphic artist who specializes in pop art and neo-expressionism, and is known for his, let's just say, generous use of vibrant colors. We'll get to know him better in just a second, but first, as usual, we have to get into some Art news. Okay, so a quick rundown from the art industry news. It's a daily digest of the most consequential developments coming out of the art world and art market. So here's what you need to know. Uh, what you need to know right now. First up, uh, Medicis Sans Frontieres under fire for use of exploitive images. So that's Doctors Without Borders. There, almost 50 current and former staff members as well as doctors, photographers, and activists have signed an open letter accusing the aid organization's Doctors Without Borders of selling human misery by selling exploitative photographs of vulnerable victims to raise money. A spokesman, uh, spokesman for the organization said its aim is to raise awareness of underreported crises, but that it will seek to address and potentially remove images that do not meet its current standards. So more on that, uh, if you go over to The Guardian, reading uh, maybe you want to Google uh, Doctors Without Borders. Next up, a quick, uh, again, we're doing this quick rundown of some of the headlines. Uh, NEA awards $91 million to art organizations. So the latest round of grants from the National Endowment for the Arts will benefit 1,200 uh, organizations in the United States. Uh, these awards include $20,000 to Pittsburgh Glass Center for a residency program designed to Introduce artists to the medium of glass. Cool. 40,000 will go to New Mexico State University for an exhibition on Mexican ex votos or Catholic devotional paintings. And that, you can find that at Hyperallergenic uh, website there about the NDA Awards. And from the New York Times, uh, Palermo Public Art Initiative targets the mafia. So to mark the 30th anniversary of the killing of Giovanni Falcone, a judge who combated the mafia's influence, the city of Palermo, Sicily, unveiled a series of art installations to remind residents of the city's grim years under, the mob, under mob control. We have always known that culture is one of the best weapons against the mafia, said Maria Falcone, Giovanni's sister. Works include Tree of Everybody by Gregor uh, Pruger, a fir tree with mafia victims carved into its branches. Again, that's at the New York Times for more on that. And the last on a quick rundown is uh, Marisol Masterpiece. Masterpieces have almost all been returned. And this is from art, uh, the art newspaper. And they go on to say, Masterworks from the Marisol collection have safely returned to Russia after a right, after high-profile exhibition at the Foundation Louis Vuitton in Paris, coincided with the war, coinciding with the war in Ukraine. So the voyage home was fraught with complications. So there were five convoys of, of six trucks traveling through Belgium and Germany before 
traveling by ferry to Helsinki, and finally Russia. Each truck could carry art worth 200 million. Three works from the show, one of which belongs to Ukraine, and two that belong to Russia oligarchs remain in France. Okay, so those were the, were the quick headlines. Uh, and for our deeper dive, the first in our deeper dive, we have um, former Louvre director Jean-Luc Martin, uh, Martinez indicted on art trafficking charges. So this one is written up on the Daily Beast uh, with, the sub, uh, with, with the summary here. The Frenchman is accused of complicity in trafficking hundreds of pieces of art with tens of millions of dollars through Middle Eastern countries during the Arab Spring uprisings. So let's jump right into it here. The former director of the Louvre Museum in Paris and two French uh, Egyptologists were taken into custody in France, accused of helping traffic millions of dollars worth of stolen art, some of which is alleged to have ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So Jean-Luc Martinez was indicted late Wednesday for complicity in fraud in an organized gang and laundering by false faxillation of the origin of property after enduring a lengthy inter, um, interrogation by art detectives in Paris. So the Egyptologists were briefly held and then released pending further investigation, which French media speculate could mean cooperating against Martinez. The men have been under scrutiny over the provenance a provenance of hundreds of items of art that investigators say they turned a blind eye to when they bought it. Provenance is akin to a passport for ancient artifacts that prove where it is from and how it left the country of origin, either their sale or loan. In the early 2000s, scores of American museums that had bought looted art through shady dealers in Italy and Greece were forced to return the treasures to the countries of origin. Much of the alleged traffic art is tied to the bust of a ring of art experts turned traffickers who are alleged to have laundered stolen an, um, antiques through Egypt, Syria, Libya, Yemen uh, during the height of the Arab Spring. During that time, it became easy to falsify providence documents that are normally needed to export ancient artifacts. Martinez was taken in for questioning by France's primary office that fights art trafficking and was reportedly grilled over a number of pieces of art he signed off on, including the infamous golden coffin from the 1st century BC dedicated to, uh, whoa, how do you pronounce this? Nejemunk. Let me look this up. How do I pronounce this? Nejemunk? Yeah, Nejemunk. Okay. Hey, I did it right the first time. I, I think I pronounced that right. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm sure you guys will correct me later that the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York bought for a cool four million in 2017 and then had a return to Egypt when it was uh, sequestered by the district attorney's office. The sarcophagus was sold to the Met by Christoph Kuniki. He was charged in June of 2020 with criminal conspiracy, gang fraud, and art laundering. Almost uh, at the home stretch here so french police are focusing in on other illicit art kuniki sold to martinez for the Louvre abu dhabi branch valued at more than 53 million which they believe martinez very well knew uh lacked verifiable provenance among those priced pieces are five highly valued pieces of egyptian art including a pink granite slab depicting king 
Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun. Okay, I'll go with that one. <laughs> and but uh, but one once big museums like the Louvre or Met own these pieces, they can often legitimize the paperwork and sell them on. So get them back into the stream of uh, legitimate art. French police said Thursday they believe Martinez will uh, was well aware of the fraudulent nature of his purchase. Representative for the Met told the art newspaper that they are duped. Duped, they say. And that employees are deceived uh, by this criminal conspiracy and the museum has been fully cooperative throughout this investigation and will continue to be so. It is unclear if the Met cooperated in the investigation against Martinez, who was a director at the Louvre at the time, so from 2013 to 2021. After his resignation in good terms, he was appointed by the French government as a special ambassador for international cooperation on cultural heritage. He has denied any wrongdoing through his lawyers. And that was reading from, again, the Daily Beast. And for our last um, article here, once again, we are under the cloud of a mass shooting in America. And we in the art world are not immune. We are just as affected. We read the same news. We come across the same um, grocery stores or schools that our, you know, our families and loved ones uh, frequent. So... This is prescient to what's, uh, what was recently we had a mass shooting at a school at Uvalde, Texas. And here's how the um, art world is responding. So we need a national memorial to gun violence now. That is written up in the Washington Post. So we begin. We need a national memorial to gun violence now. It must be at the end of the National Mall near the base of the U.S. Capitol where loyalty to the National Rifle Association has long trumped the national welfare, including the survival of our children. Design and construction of the memorial should begin immediately, and the memorial should be imposing, sobering, and monumental. It should include the names of every victim of gun violence, which is, of course, impracticable. But that is the point. This memorial is meant to be finished only when America's grotesque, fetish cult of guns has finally yielded to peace. There is one obvious and necessary site for the memorial. The loop off triangle of, of land on the north side of the Capitol reflecting pool at the base of the Capitol, a plot bounded by Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, Constitutional, uh, Constitution Ave, and 1st and 3rd Streets Northwest. This is the last large open space close to the Capitol. And the new memorial should be close to the Capitol, close enough to implicate and shame the men and women who work inside it on a daily basis. Year after year, decade after decade, gun violence remains our preeminent source of national grief and humiliation. A battle we lose every hour, with a toll beyond calculation, if measured in, in the only term uh, that matters, which is misery. All of this could be stopped, and we could join the host of other countries, many of them developed, prosperous democracies, in which this scourge is unknown. We could were it not for the gun lobby and its uh, dominion over a sufficient number of elected representatives to thwart all efforts at reasonable gun control. The plot on the northwest side of the Capitol grounds has a symbolic resonance and des uh, density that the original designers of the mall would have wanted. A gun violence memorial situated there would be symmetry uh, across the north-south axis of Union Square. Uh, the Union Square, the site of the brooding and powerful memorial of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Thus, 
it would balance the message of growth and fertility embodied in the U.S. Botanic Garden, um, which is cited in the mirror image plot uh, along in the Independence Ave. One side of the square would be a memorial to death. On the other side, a garden of life. And between them, a reflecting pool and a reminder of the Civil War, a war of fracturing carnage that we actually fought to an end, unlike our ongoing age of self-destruction. The memorial would, be, would also be uh, contiguous on its southeast corner with the Peace Monument, erected in 1878 and meant as a Civil War memorial. Atop this 44-foot high marble sculpture, the, the figure of grief hides her face, weeping on the shoulder of history. And its base are the figures of two Chinese, tiny children, representing Mars and Neptune. But forget their allegorical meaning, let them just be children, like the children who died in Newtown, like the children who died in a fourth grade classroom Tuesday in Uvalde. Visitors to the new National Memorial to Gun Violence will be able to look up at the Capitol and ask questions prompted by the old peace monument. Why can't the United States of America protect its children? Why do we continue to use weapons of war to make war on ourselves? Why have we committed to a doctrine of self-destruction when once we thought we might wrangle history and define our own destiny? Why does grief never take a vacation? And what would this new memorial look like? There is already a gun violence memorial project conceived by Mass Design Group and conceptual artist Hank Willis Thomas, which has been installed in Chicago and is now on view through September in uh, Washington. It offers one very sensible possibility for what the new National Memorial might look like. It includes four house-like structures made of glass bricks with niches in which the families of gun violence victims have placed mementos of their lost loved ones scalped up to a necropolis. It could make the right impression uh, a, mo uh, a modernist Hooverville of death in the shadow of our great national carnal house of inaction. But it would also need a focus, a site for public speaking and gathering. The essential thing is that the new memorial forces us all, and especially our feckless political leaders, to get beyond the generalities and obfuscations they have used for decades to perpetuate this endless and chaotic civil violence. It must be a place where thoughts are specific and prayers are articulated publicly. No politician may come and simply repeat the platitude of thoughts and prayers. What uh, specifically are you praying for? And does your religion allow you to ask God to fix things you might easily fix if you had to, you know, the courage to do so? After every mass shooting, turn on the, uh, the brightest lights, power up the microphones, and let no politi political leader who makes the symbolic pilgrimage escape speaking actual truth on a site sacred to those who suffer. It should be the obvious place where the president, after yet another mass shooting, mass killing like uh, the racist killing of 10 African Americans in Buffalo less than a week prior, uh, less than two weeks prior, he should have to go there to make his or her statement and say his or her prayers if he or she is religious, let them the motorcade travel up Pennsylvania Avenue, reversing the direction of the inaugural parade to symbolically enact the undoing of our own power. The uselessness of political leadership is a culture bought and paid for by the gun lobby. If the memorial is classical in design, and perhaps that will speak better to the audience that needs to hear this message, let it be engraved not with vague platitudes, but very specific pleas and demands. Our poets 
will say it better. So let them dress up words to this effect and chisel them in the freeze. Here we grieve those who died because we were impotent to help ourselves. Regardless of the style or particulars of its design, the essential thing is that it imposes itself on the landscape. It must be large enough that no tour bus can pass by without someone on board asking, what is that? Why is that there? Why are they still hammering names on it on its wall and how can we make them stop? Perhaps it should be a bell, a huge, somber bell, loud enough to be heard inside the Senate chamber. Let it ring once for every gun death the United States that day. With well more than 100 gun deaths per day, it would mark the quarter hours at least. Make it the Liberty Bell, the actual Liberty Bell, and ring it until it shatters. Because who can say we are free when we cannot free ourselves from its self-immolation? There are huge hurdles to, uh, to creating new monuments and memorials in Washington, a process that can take years. This particular uh, parcel of land is at the end of National Mall in an area controlled by the architect of the Capitol and subject to a complex process of oversight. But the new memorial should be defined from the beginning as a temporary structure to be demolished the minute, perhaps when gun deaths fall below some designated daily toll. Ideally, zero. But at least something that isn't an international embarrassment. And let's hope it is finished. Let's hope that one day, for a full day, the bell never rings. It never tolls. And the masons chiseling names on the walls can put down their tools. And that's a very powerful piece by Philip uh, Kennecutt over at the Washington Post. I recommend you uh, check it out, share it uh, with, with your friends. And lastly, our book recommendation for this episode. This one is from 2002, The Art of Peter Max by Charles Riley and Peter Max. It's a comprehensive retrospective that illustrates the artist's life and prolific career as reflected in his works and includes 350 full-page images, many previously unpublished. In an excerpt written about the book, uh, Peter Max created a delirium of gorgeously imaginative and technically innovative posters and album covers during the 60s that perfectly capture the liberating power of rock and roll in brilliant colors, kaleidoscopic patterns within patterns, and bold Art Deco-inspired graphics, but as instantly recognizable as Max's work is, his life story is not as well known, um, and it's a pretty big tale. Uh, pr uh, brilliantly hued retro uh, reproductions of this uh, prismatic and enchanting work are accompanied by equally energized and enlightening commentary as Riley recounts Max's life and times. So pick that up. Uh, like I said, it's from 2002. It's called The Art of Peter Max. And coincidentally, Peter Max is the subject matter for today. So let's get back to our Ecrastic Artist of the Day. Born Peter Max Finkelstein in October 1937 in Berlin, Germany, the son of German Jews, uh, Sela and Jacob, the family would later would, would flee Berlin in 1938, moving between China and Israel and Paris before settling in Brooklyn in 1953. So Max's rise to prominence as an American icon actually began in his childhood home in Shanghai. So he lived in a, a pagoda house where on one side there was a Buddhist monastery and on the other side a Sikh temple. In the morning he would watch the Buddhist monks painting Chinese characters on vast sheets of rice paper with large bamboo brushes and at night 
he would listen to the beautifully sung prayers of the Sikhs. Shanghai was a colorful, magical place. There were always parades going by with dragons floating in the sky, chimes ringing and gongs echoing. Max was incredibly um, artistic from the very moment he was born, uh, but but all of these would color the tapestry of his creativity. Uh, and, and since he was born, he was always constantly searching for uh, an outlet and, and ways to express uh, his imagination. So for Peter, color was paired with sound and intense synesthesia. The ripple of crayons on a, on a steamer trunk was the first memorable experiences from the artist where he truly realized his love for sound and color. Today, there are few works by Max created in silence. So back to the Finkelsteins. Eventually, like I said, they moved to Brooklyn. Uh, three years after arriving uh, to New York, Max began his first formal art training at the Art Students League of New York under the tutelage of Frank Riley. He went on to study at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Uh, in 1962, Max started a small Manhattan art studio known as the Daily and Max Studio with friend Tom Daly. So Daly and Max were joined by friends and mentor Don Rubo later on, and the three worked as a group on books and advertising for which they received industry recognition. Much of their work incorporated uh, antique photographic images as elements of collage. Max's interest in astronomy contributed to his self-described cosmic 60s period, which featured psychedelic contour culture images um, Max's art was popularized, matter of fact, uh, uh, through national TV uh, commercials. Uh, there was a 1968 commercial, the Uncola. It was an ad for a soft drink for 7-Up, which helped drive sales of his art posters and other merchandise. By 1968, Peter Max was a bona fide pop art sensation. But while other protagonists of the movement like Andy Warhol or, or Roy Lichtenstein used their art as a commentary on commercialism, Peter was much less discerning about his art. He had more of a, let's call, happy palette vibe. With such a pan-cultural background, it was inevitable that his work would become so rich and diverse. Also, early on in his life, Max fell in love with three things. Comic books, movies, and jazz. His early love for comic books hugely affects his style. So you walk into a room, how do you spot a Peter Max? You're going to look for foreshortening of lines, bold colors, and the heavy black outline of characters, like in the comics. But overall, his work is very uplifting. Employing patternly strokes, his illustrations incorporate a wide spectrum of colors and patterns as seen in his Umbrella Man series, for example. You let him tell it, he, he would say, I'm just wild by the universe. I'm just glad to do something I love to do. I love color. I love painting. I love shapes. I love composition. I love the people around me, he once said. And he says, he finished, uh, I'm admiring it all. Today's ekphrastic poem is actually an original. I call it Warning Signs. It's sort of a retrospective on Peter Max's uh, love. So, let me remind you, here's how this works. This is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I would like you to visit the Ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check the show notes. There should, be a sh there should be a link. 
There you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discussed to accompany today's reading. I want you to pull up Love. It's an acrylic and silkscreen on canvas, which really put Peter on the map. Since 1968, the image has graced countless walls as a poster. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. Warning signs. See, love is pie, irrational. It cannot be expressed exactly, factual. The beauty of pie in part, it tears at the seam of your heart. It tears affinity apart. At the same time, it brings it within reach. The digits of love never end. It never show a pattern. It seems to go on forever, seemingly at random. Except that it can't possibly be a miracle that they express the order inherent in a perfect circle. This tension between order and chaos is provocative, it's perverse. Love is woven to the innermost fabric of the universe. So love is divine, we all agree. That's what we're here for. See, love is a ride. It's a hell of a ride. It's a roller coaster. Love is a roller coaster with no seatbelts. Whirly, twirly, loop-de-loop. -loop. Dizzy, spinny, scoop and shoot. Topsy, turby, hoop-de-hoop. Hold on for your life. It can take you to the highest, most spectacular heights. Will drop you to the lowest, the lowest and coldest of nights. Picks you up, drops you down, chews you up, spits you out. Wait, my mind's blown. Spits you out into the cyclone. See, love is a hurricane. I remember love is brutal as the winds of a hurricane. The damage done, I'm still fixing, fixing, fixing all the cracks. Lost a couple of pieces when I carried, I carried it back, back home with me. A broken heart, it's all that's left. She resides in the center of it all, in the eye of the storm. All my favorite colors painted in the wind, that's where love was born. She's like rain when she rolls in, and it's pouring, pouring. But there's sunshine in her thunder, and she's glowing. Holding lightning, holding lightning in both hands. But that was yesterday. Wait, wait, I believe in yesterday. Can we pretend, Can we pretend, 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 pretend that from now on, there is no yesterday? Paint a portrait of tomorrow, with no other colors of today? Can we pretend, pretend that love pretend, pretend, is an easy game to play? At least until we need a place to hide away. It's a losing game, love. I know when I hold it. When I fold it, love is a scam, love. I gotta know when to walk away or run. How much change lost in that arcade? So much change until the gambler's debt is paid. Yet nothing changed. I admit it, mistakes were made. It was a losing game we played. But that was yesterday's thing. And it was better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Addicted to a losing game. Peter Max's most iconic and popular work from his cosmic 60s period, Love, is an Art Nouveau-inspired poster that graced countless dorm room and boardroom walls in the age of Aquarius. Love remains a collector favorite in the decades since. Just this side of abstract, Max's love was an essential component of the 60s youth movement. The visual counterparts of the music of the Beatles, Hendrix, The Who, Grateful Dead, in his love poster, Max executes his signature and innovative split fountain color technique on press to create a smooth color blended background. His peaceful cosmic profile grows like a flower through his hand-drawn love letters, simply and elegantly sharing the message of the cultural landscape. Peter Max evolved from a visionary pop artist of the 60s to a master of neo-expressionism. 
His vibrant and colorful works have become a lasting part of contemporary American culture. In the 60s and 70s, uh, Mr. Max was a countercultural icon, a rare painter that to achieve such a name and recognition in the mainstream, that's huge. His psychedelic renderings could be found on the cover of Time, the White House lawn, and even a postage stamp. Later on in his career, he would become an outspoken political activist and environmentalist, and a staunch defender of human and animal rights. Most famously, Max contributed to rescue efforts for Cincinnati freedom. So a cow had escaped from an Ohio slaughterhouse. The cow jumped over the six-foot fence while the slaughterhouse workers were on break and eluded capture for 11 days. Max donated $180,000 worth of his art to benefit the local society for the prevention of cruelty to animals, part of a chain of events that finally led to the cow being sent to, uh, to a farm sanctuary in Watkins Glen, New York, a permanent home where the cow remained for the rest of her life. Several years later, he received a diagnosis of symptoms related to Alzheimer's, and he now suffers from pretty advanced dementia. Today, he's 84. Uh, he hasn't painted seriously in many years. According to people with direct knowledge of his condition, um, he just doesn't know uh, he doesn't even know what, what year it is, and he spends most afternoons curled up in a red velvet lounger in his apartment looking up at the Hudson uh, River. He still currently lives in New York, actually. I can almost guarantee you that you've seen a Peter Max. Uh, so Peter Max is painted for six, six presidents. His art is on display in presidential libraries and in embassies and airports. Max has painted Lady Liberty uh, annually since America's Bicentennial in 2000. Um, a collage of his liberties adorned over 145 million Verizon phone books back when we had those sorts of things. Max was the official artist of the 2006 Olympic, uh, uh, the Olympic team and the Winter Olympics in, uh, in, in, in Italy. He has also been official artist of five Super Bowls, a World Cup, um, the World Series, U.S. Open, the Indy 500 even the New York Marathon and Kentucky Derby. The artist's works are included in the collections of the Museum of Works uh, in New York, in Indianapolis, DC. I can almost guarantee you've seen a Peter Max, and you will again. A very, a really good resource, if you are eager to, you know, dive deeper into Peter Max's work, he has, you know, a, a pretty um, up-to-date website, petermax.com. You go there, all his, his, you know, his biography is on there, uh, his catalog is on there. So I recommend you check him out um, because it was it was fun for me to um, get to know Peter Max a little bit a little bit better. I've I've like I said, you know, I'm pretty sure you've run into a Peter Max, and I have definitely in my in, in my in my past. And uh, it was great getting to know him, just diving a little deeper into the who who the artist is. And so thanks for joining me, and we painted yet another pretty picture with our words. I'm glad uh, you could take that time to uh, join me on that. Uh, for this and other artwork we discuss, uh, please visit my website, darwindarker.com backslash ickfrastic. It's where you can find all this stuff cataloged for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, please rate us five stars, hopefully. Uh, leave a comment. You know, maybe I'll you know find it and I can read it on the show. Uh, a great way to support the show is also to share the show on your socials facebook twitter whatsapp all the good stuff on twitter you can find us at the on instagram same thing the 
And on YouTube, just search Ekphrastic Podcast. Follow the show, and whenever we put up new content, maybe we can find our way in your timelines. And look forward to see you there. I'm Dara Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to the Ekphrastic. <laughs>